Hi, I'm Patrick Pittman. Until now, we've divided this show into two major segments. The first, a roundtable on a topic that's probably usually timely, something about which we usually at least try to have some kind of take or question. And the second is a smaller roundtable, which we call the near past, a conversation during which we unpack something that was, at some moment in time, a big deal, and now is either still a big deal or is no longer a deal of any kind. We check in, basically. But after much chatting behind closed doors here and me sitting on the beach in Australia, which was very nice, thank you very much, we've decided to reassign names to these segments that fit nicely with the name of our show, Noonmark. So with that, we'll now be referring to the first segment as AM and the second as PM. You see what we did there? Just like that, either side of the Noonmark accounted for. This is Noonmark, a podcast from Make Ready. So this week in the AM, bright and early, we're talking about Tipping, a topic that's gotten a lot of attention lately, as a trend to do away with. We want to look at the function of the tip. And then, in the PM, X-Files and conspiracy theories, which I'm always talking about. I'm just making them record it this time. <laughs> Here with me, as always, Anna Duckworth. Hi, Patrick. Welcome home. Thank you. John De Palma. Hi, Patrick. And Eli Bernstein. Hello. Louis-Jacques Darvaux is currently on assignment in the rainy, rainy British Isles. We miss him very much. This is episode 16 of Noonmark. Welcome to it. So the no-tip restaurant is a hot topic right now. New York celebrity chef Danny Mayer has been in the news a lot about his decision to ban it in his restaurants. It's happening here in Toronto too. But elsewhere in the world, the tradition of tipping doesn't exist. It was, again, weird. I'm just going to mention being back in Australia one more time just to rub it it. in. But, yeah, you know where I was? Do you know where I spent? (laughs) Uh, (laughs) It's weird being back again in a culture where you don't leave money at the bar when you buy a beer and you feel kind of like a jerk. But anyway, it exists under very different terms than here in North America. On the heels of this latest trend to do away with tipping, we've, we've got to look at the function of the tip in a restaurant, not so much for historical context, but more for right now. Is the trend to get rid of it in an attempt by chefs to pay a staff a fair and living wage? Is it to absolve restaurant patrons of the burden of tipping? Or is it to improve service and in turn the dining experience? Eli, is tipping broken? Well, uh, that's a big question and I don't know the answer to it. Okay, next. (laughs) (laughs) But I think that it's a really interesting uh, move he's making. I mean, he owns 13 restaurants, uh, big popular restaurants in New York City. So it's a kind of bold, big move to introduce that across all of them. No oh, it's t- across all of them. It's across all of them. Well, he's starting with one or two now and he's rolling them out kind of throughout 2016. Mm-hmm. Um, like he has Gramercy, what's it called? Gramercy, Gramercy, Gramercy Tavern, Tavern yeah. Union Square Cafe, The Modern at MoMA. Like he has a bunch of big restaurants and he's removing, he's going so far as to remove the tipping line from the bill. So it's not even really an option. And... Um, I, I do think it's broken. I mean, it's 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 a bold move, not only because you're going to get a lot of pushback from servers, um, but it seems pr- pretty un-American, right? I mean, that's always a big thing. You know, you go to Europe uh, or other parts of the world, you realize that's not as big a part of the culture. And here, we're trying to reward good service and there's a bit of a kind of a, a capitalist market enterprise kind of attitude there. But uh, ultimately, I think it's a great idea. It's a risky one, but not only does it, um, I think the biggest thing is that it improves the customer experience. So you're no longer, uh, you no longer have to think about it, right? I mean, the prices uh, that you see on the menu and on the bill uh, reflect directly what, what you want. And then 
Um, on top of that, you just don't have to stress about kind of properly uh, uh, evaluating the service, rewarding the service, feeling pressure to, to sufficiently tip, feeling guilty for not tipping enough. Mm-hmm. Um, also, I think how many of us actually conform to the idea that our tip is commensurate with the service? Well, this is, this is the thing, right? It I doesn't. Mean, there's, and, and, and should it? I mean, then you have to look at a global trend for this. And I think a lot of people that work in this industry try to say this over and over, try to move the perception away from it being a reward for good service and to get people to understand that a tip is actually you paying for your service. Mm-hmm. You're paying for the service component of your food. And frankly, it's not up to you to decide whether or not right. you serve the food. Yeah. You're paying a living wage for and somebody it, there. And unless you've worked in the restaurant industry, you don't, a lot of people don't know that. I mean, we've mm-hmm. all been at dinner with people who have a bad experience and then actually take it upon themselves to not tip, which for anybody who's served is a really ridiculously embarrassing and, thing and the argument do. is often well why why should i have to pay when the food was no good yet nobody ever says well i'm only going to pay 80 percent of the cost of my steak mm-hmm. here they it's always that's the one bit where there's leeway left in there for them to make that kind of decision and that's not accidental on the you know in the nature mm. of how markets work that those with the least power have put in the situation of risk there yeah exactly and the fact that there's like a different like minimum wages for serving people for service industries because um then the patron is like responsible or the customer is responsible for making that up is uh you know assuming that each person in that position like has a similar access to an environment where they're going to be tipped right you can't know the culture of different restaurants or the culture of different cities or anything like that and it's like it just puts the burden on customers in a way that's yeah, like... And do, you, do you know the state-by-state or province-by-province regulations on whether the kitchen's being tipped out with your tip as well as the um, the staff that you're actually interacting with and those kinds of things yeah. and whether they're on a living wage also? Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of corruption in there. Sometimes you hear about like restaurant owners actually taking tips, which I think is like highly illegal. Yeah. I think another big advantage of um, removing tipping is not only the relief uh, to the customer and the kind of simplification of the experience and the kind of reduction in stress of the experience is that um, it puts power back in the hands of the employers to compensate their workers or merit, uh, you know, reward good service, right? So I have, a, I have a quote here from Danny Mayer. He says, restaurateurs, I might be pronouncing that word wrong, restaurateurs surrender their use of compensation as an appropriate tool to reward merit and promote excellence when they kind of give the power to tip to the customer and kind of take it away from themselves. So you just say something interesting there that's fascinating in terms of the the political and, and argument of this. We're, we're talking about doing better by the servers, but you specifically talk about putting power back in the hands of the employers, mm-hmm. which, you're, which you're correct about. Mm-hmm. That's a really interesting shift there. Yeah, it's true. I mean, I think that to me, that's an argument that I would make to those who'd want to defend the kind of capitalist uh, angle of tipping to say actually if if you believe in any of that um, I think that y- you should also see the advantage of saying no it's actually good business to be able to for an employer to say he you, you know I'm promoting you I'm giving you a raise because you're doing well or um, and mm. if that's not part of the equation it's just servers right. across the board know they're going to get their 15 or 20 or 18 or 20 percent simply because that's what everybody does then the motivation is actually not as strong I mean, it's interesting to look at the actual numbers. There are a lot of servers, even though this is their job, they actually don't know that the service that they give really doesn't affect 
their tips. That's proven. So, but there's something really motivating about going to work every day and and having this idea that you might be able to make a lot of money, a lot more money than you would if you did a bad job, um, and that a lot of them are motivated by that. But I mean, l- on a long term view, if we get rid of tipping. I would assume that it's be it's because these waiters are going to be paid properly and at, you know at the same rate that they in theory get paid through tips but I would be really surprised if they would which I think is going to hugely affect the quality of service available across the board like the pool of good servers. And this is the thing you can't um that you need to stay cautious in terms of reading and assessing these experiments from the likes of Danny Mayer. You're not <laughs> going to be able to tell how this is going to work industry-wide in one of the most notoriously cutthroat of industries and mm-hmm. low margin of industries by looking at how well it plays at the fancy at the, restaurant at the, at the prestigious yeah. um, well treating like and staff have to be good to get there right, right? part exactly. of the, the high-end ones uh is the kind of the theater of the dining experience and uh, Eli, i mentioned that earlier when you're saying that the experience of ending your meal, not having to calculate a tip or not having to think about that and do the calculation in your head. Part of that theater is uh, includes theater for the employee. So if you are used to having like short-term employees, um, then it's like you're saying the motivation for them to work hard. Is, that's a myth. You're just creating this story about it. And at a high-end one, it's like they want to have good talent. They want to foster those longer-term incentives rather than I hope they come into work today. It's like, I hope they work harder and harder and try to stay with us. So mm-hmm. and this is the thing is objectively, um, you know, and you have to compare this to cultural sort of tradition and things as well. But I will say objectively in the non-tipping cultures I've lived in, service is a lot worse, you know, generally across the board. It takes you a lot, in basic terms, it takes you a lot longer to get a beer in Australia and they're never going to pretend to give a shit about you, except in rare good bars. Like, again, where they're making that level of service part of their thing. Mm -hmm. But generally across the board, and, you know, anybody will tell you that service is nowhere near as good as it is in the US. Um, The US and North America tend to have really great restaurant service. Do you think that's exclusively due to the tipping culture? Well, no. I mean, I think and then you have to look as well at, um, you know, the traditional cultures, uh, the the food cultures of Europe and where the idea of being service staff is is generally more highly regarded and it's tradition that mm-hmm. serves good that drives good service in Australia you would argue that market forces drive good service as opposed to the customer as mm-hmm. it would be in North America i think there's different factors at play in all of those and they can't be taken or read individually mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, I th- also think that, uh, Anna, to return to your point, I think that the pay would be more consistent for servers, for right. sure, maybe lower. But I also think that uh, you it's hard to put a price on the fact that you don't have to take shit from customers. I mean, the amount of, um, you know, p- perhaps high-end dining establishments, maybe this isn't, that's not the place where it happens most. I have no idea. Mm-hmm. But it's, I think, a disproportionately large amount of sexual harassment cases arise out of the hospitality industry. Um, and I think that this would have a big effect on that. Um, I mean, obviously, you know, harassment's harassment, but people are more inclined to to put up with it because they know that there's, you know, it just gets complicated. The dynamics get very weird when you know that you, you stand to receive no tip if you make a complaint or push, make a complaint or push right. back. So mm-hmm. I think that it actually puts more power in the server's uh, hands as well. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's a, I think it's a really smart move, but I also think like it would be, pretty uh 
blind to assume that Danny Mayer isn't doing this because it's a, no one else is doing it and it's just a really good marketing tact. Yeah, there are some restaurants in California do have been doing it for a little while and some some it works, some it doesn't, some they make it part of the identity of the place. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, just as our food is farm to table, we our staff are all part of the we all share in the profits, all of that kind <laughs> okay. of stuff. And that that can work. And I mean, there are some where it hasn't worked so well as well. One of the things is customer confusion as well. When you are in a market in which it's expected that you add 20% to your bill and then you tell customers, no, you don't have to. They're like, what do you mean? Like, you're saying I don't have to, but do mm-hmm. I have to? Right. Really? I mean, am I going to be an asshole when I leave mm-hmm. now? Like changing that level of ingrained behavior. It's like when you try to introduce a different traffic rule, like turning left yeah, this, from the right or something mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, there's definitely an adjustment period. And I think that that's uh, what makes it risky. Like, I think, Anna, you're right that it is a good marketing ploy in some ways because it definitely attracts attention. But I also think it's very risky. I mean, the, in order to do this, they also have to raise the prices, obviously, on all menu items, right? Mm-hmm. To, to, to offset the cost. They have to the raise cost. the price or they need to include the service price yeah, within exactly. the cost. Right, the right. I mean, that, which that, makes that, it seem more expensive. Yeah, I guess but I, I also think one thing that we haven't talked about with this is that it also means, especially in, in a place like New York State where there's a tipped minimum wage where the server's uh, annual salaries are lower, but the tips kind of more than make up for the difference there. Cooks don't get any of that. And cooks, uh, there tends to be a big pay disparity between the servers and the cooks. And um, so a large part of this has to do, I mean, yeah, I mean, Danny Mayer is trying to sell it. And, you know, I'm I'm obviously kind of drawing, I've I've been, I've drank the Kool-Aid a little bit, but I think that um, cooks would, a be paid more uh, fairly, and also I think that it, sa- it sounds like there's a bit of a talent war for cooks, and I think that to be able to pay competitively, uh, to pay cooks competitively would be a big advantage for them. What do we think about the tax implications of the tipping system? Like the fact that there's just I don't know. I heard some like crazy number. I can't remember what it was, but that much money that's just being exchanged below board. Oh, absolutely! Absolutely, yeah. I wouldn't have the numbers to hand, but I it think is it's, monumental. It's like forty billion and dollars. Or I would something. imagine in the U.S., it's one of the IRS's major hobbies <laughs> is to spend a lot of time on that project, and it's you know relatively easy to enforce for the Danny Mayers of the world. But when you're talking about all of the little bars around the world with people working for cash and all of that, you know, it's it's impossible. And then so there are huge implications for that on a tax level, which is. You know, why the government's always quite keen to see, I think, moves towards those kind of cultures. Which you'd think would promote them or encourage them to raise the minimum wage. Yeah. Yeah, that might be a good suggestion. But that's a tough thing to do as well, because as soon as you do that, then industries say they're going to collapse because they could never possibly do whatever it is you're asking them to do. A quick question to wrap this up. Um, It's something we've talked about. Just generally, do you feel... We tend to be higher tippers than maybe earlier generations were. Like, I mean, Definitely. we just say, like, yeah, how much sure. do you guys tend to tip default? 20%. Yeah, 20. 18 to 20. 20, just because it's easier, but, yeah. you know. But eight, eight, 18. <laughs> that's just 2% reward for yeah, good service. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so pretty much the default seems to be 20% these days. I don't know us. that it is, though. Well, I yeah. feel like I'm a generous tipper, or we're mm-hmm. generous tippers. I don't I think mean, so. 
No. No. I think and in I, the city of Toronto, you go to a restaurant, it's it's automatically, you know, the suggestion that's on the uh But that's the, new. But it how do you know? It used say 15% yeah. and mm-hmm. then it said 18% and 20% is like something I've only seen in the last few years. But I mean, those are just the POS things, right? Like, they, like I don't... I that's never, what I mean. It's there's a whole refl- other question it, about those and how they... the trend. I read a study on how those affect the behavior and now they put like 25% as the middle option because people pick the middle option. And oh, yeah. You sure. do see that one too. Yeah. yeah, that's yeah. yeah. So in that way, though, I think it doesn't like reflect the trend it's trying to push it like you're saying yeah. right but for sure like parents i mean we've talked about this our parents you know my dad doesn't tip on my dad tips on pre-tax and your dad tips on pre-booze like right know, there's these things but these <laughs> and guys it's 15% are old. For we that. love you bye dad <laughs> yeah no my parents said that the custom was to tip pre-tax and pre-booze all right and if you call my parents cheap i'll cut you but like what about when they order the Long Island iced tea that takes the bar first? The one at TGI Fridays? <laughs> yeah. I don't know. It was all pennies back then. I don't know. <laughs> all right. We've gone past the other side of the noon mark on the dial now. It's PM. That's what happens when it's afternoon. Mm. Post meridian. Ooh, nice. Mm, yeah. So, conspiracy. I've been talking about it a lot this week uh, with the return of the X-Files, uh, which, you know, is it conspiracies always occupied a particular place in popular imagination, rising and falling and shifting with the tides of social and political circumstance and you know, basically how much people trust the government, either on the left or the right. They're a fun little trope, an easy crutch upon which storytellers could lean and just about everyone was charmed by them in, at some stage in their life. Or seduced, maybe, you might say. I mean, sure, The X-Files was a product of the 1990s when imagination of sinister cabals and government cover-ups hadn't yet swung hard from left to right. But FEMA death camps, false flag operations, vast media conspiracies, after weather manipulation even, after all the disaster and destruction and war of the last decade, that just comes across a bit icky, right? Are we in less innocent times now? Am I just an older man? Are we actually on the other side of the spectrum here? Are conspiracies are still a seductive thing on the left these days? It, I, I'm not so sure about like politically, um, but it seems that, I mean, the internet is a great place to be introduced to conspiracies because you can always find whatever answer you're looking for. And I think, uh, you know, from from both sides. Mm-hmm. It's, I, I don't, I'm not familiar with... Uh, the return of the X-Files and like I every time that I've kind of gone down the rabbit hole of some conspiracy or another uh, the ones that I've looked into haven't really been political but you know I'm aware that they may be informed by just like yeah that distrust of just like oh man these like politicians don't represent me and therefore all this stuff must be false mm-hmm. and you just like keep going and going and going until you realize that you're on like some craziest website. Yeah, I, uh, uh, over the weekend, was hanging out with a few friends, and one of them, uh, she kind of expressed the belief that she, she just denied the moon landing. She just kind of went out and said, you know, I don't, I don't believe it. And I was like, aren't we, I had this knee-jerk. Aren't we past that? Yeah, aren't we past this? I had this knee, but the thing is, I also feel guilty, because I had this knee-jerk reaction to roll my eyes, so my knees jerked and my eyes rolled, and I felt like... <laughs> You know, I go. I, you know, I immediately was like, "Are you serious? Come on, the, the moon landing. Are you really going to go through that? Like, kind of go through with that again? Do you have any evidence? Blah blah blah." But I mean, I'm. I also feel like I uh, am just kind of 
filling out an automatic response. And it, right. it, it just ended up not being a very good conversation. She had no data to back it up. I had no data yeah, to back right. it up. Yeah. Either way, does anybody believe the data? So yeah. I think that to go back to your thing, Patrick, is I think that we're all cynics. Um, we don't, you know, I think the, the, in order for there to be conspiracy theories, there needs to be a kind of commonly held belief to react against. And I don't think that there is that anymore. I think that nobody believes anything anymore. I'm kind of conflicted about these things. It's sort of like, I, I love conspiracy theories, but at the same time, I understand that they are deeply problematic and dangerous. One can be an aficionado of them more right. than necessarily. But what I mean right. is, if, if we were to, if I would never be the one to dismiss a conspiracy theory in insofar as I would never be like, I don't want to hear about them anymore, la la la. Please regale me with stories of conspiracy theories because yeah. they are mm -hmm. so entertaining. And please, Sarah Palin, stand in front of me and tell me yeah, all yeah, about yeah. them. Well, you know what I mean? But Meanwhile, you're like, but there are all these people who actually believe this. Yeah. So mm -hmm. it's it's a bit it's a bit like my relationship with everything, you know. <laughs> well, it's fun when they come from like like little like subcultures that you're not familiar with, and they're like a great way to get into something deep in a subculture. Yeah. But like you're saying with the Sarah pa Sarah Palin thing, like it's it's terrifying when you realize like the life that must be left le <laughs> like to inform that like 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 otherwise like kind of novelty of yeah. a perspective but oh, wait you actually believe they're putting planes in the air full of mind controlling chemicals that will alter our right behavior? yeah like they're not dealing it with it's yeah, you but science has yeah. a pretty good explanation about the temperature there yeah. you know it's <laughs> i also th i not only do i think that everybody's too cynical um to to kind of b believe them anymore almost. Mm. But I also think that, um, at least for me, my estimation of what people can accomplish isn't, uh, my standards aren't high enough. I don't think that people can pull these yeah. things off. Well, I'm just like, they're, they're so disorganized. There's no way that, <laughs> there's no way that they could have faked that or, you know, whatever it is. Like, the, yeah. you just can't convince that many people totally. or something. That was what I was talking to um, the filmmaker Errol Morris a few months ago about conspiracy. Uh, he's got a, a documentary series coming up um, I think it's actually a Netflix series. I'll have to fact check myself later on that, but about the CIA's MK Ultra mind control programs through LSD use in the 1950s Ooh, and 60s, mm, cool. which are just like grist for the conspiracy theory mill. The right. it's, it's a glorious story, and the thing is, it's true. But right. um, <laughs> and but the thing is, those founding truths are often used to build more and more elaborate sort of narratives. Yeah. Um, you know, I have a lot of time for the books of David Icke, of which I do not believe anything in them for a moment nor are they in any way well written but god are they fun to read in a certain oh, way yeah, well no. that's um, the weird thing about them is that like often you can learn more from the telling of the conspiracy than the conspiracy itself right like to d dissect how someone tells or how a lie or a conspiracy propagates yeah. tells you a lot a it's, oh. in some ways maybe you can read them the same as science fiction in that you're not meant to be reading some sort of truth in them you're actually meant to be understanding some truth about now through a, through yeah, a piece of science right. fiction it's not about whether it's a right extrapolation of some right and i think future. that that goes back to eli's point about his friend in the moon i yeah. mean it's it's a worthwhile conversation just to know that your friend yeah you're still that. thinking about the moon but i, I have so many too. reactions to that first first i roll my eyes but then i go you know yeah maybe i don't know i mean i don't know whatever I don't care. <laughs> you're into anything of now you know? like the, it doesn't gear into anything of right now like that was decades ago like who but cares dude, imagine if it was true it caused you're like uh <laughs> yeah like how about mars you know like do we have you know, uh, like but it also the, the the kind of zeal with which certain people 
kind of fastened to the conspiracy theories. That that's what's a little bit disturbing, right? I mean, I remember an undergrad. Uh, there was a fellow who I thought was really really smart, and then all of a sudden he started talking about 9/11, and then he kind of wouldn't stop talking about it. And every conversation, somehow he would br- b- turn into a conversation <laughs> about 9/11, and it gave me cause for concern about his mental health, right? Mm. Because he was so fixated on it that it felt like you know, ideological to the point of a a real uh, obsession. And I think that there is a whole angle there. And I think that's maybe what was raising this question for me in in the X-Files coming back in is I feel like on a societal level, that's where it's gone since 9-11 is to this, you know, while it's fun to think about chemtrails and reptilian overlords and these things, particularly if the reptiles are flying the planes, there's, there's this really unpleasant feeling to the overall vast conspiracy theory of of the contemporary now that is more of a genuine concern for the psychological well-being of the world yeah yeah depressing (laughs) yeah but what i'm saying is that for me conspiracy theories are delightful and I consider myself to be radically left wing. I find them delightful too, like I say. But I not icky. Them. Nothing icky. Nothing. No, no, no. Okay. Like 9-11 was an inside job. Uh, downing planes over Sir- over like the Ukraine well, is a yeah, false flag operation. Well, I, that I, kind of stuff yeah, that's used for political redu- ends. Yeah, yeah. But, but, <laughs> well, that, poisonous. of course. But it's poisonous insofar as like... It's bullshit, but I don't think it's icky to talk about it, which is what X-Files is doing. For me, it's just like having a, it's just another conspiracy theory. Mm. Yeah, maybe. But I don't even know what X-Files is, so. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think the one thing I wanted to get back to was sort of what was talking to, on the Errol Morris thing, we're talking, and it was sort of what you were going like, these are really complex things to pull off. Right. And Occam's Razor will tell you that generally the simpler explanation is the more likely one. And people don't tend to listen to data. And evil intent in the world, sure, there's evil intent in the world. But generally, as we all learned a long time ago, evil is generally a lot more banal than that. It's true. It just ends up making a lot more sense for it not to be the case. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and you can build a lot of people, like ideologies, you, 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 know, you build this bridge to this kind of internally coherent you know, network of facts. And f- facts they often are, but th- you have to bracket so much else uh, of reality for it to make sense like you know could they have staged the moon landing yeah possibly and you know you, you point to all sorts of hints but then you know there was a space race and you know there are satellites in the air right. and there you know why would this have been the faked thing and you know just all, all sorts of common sense questions you have to completely forget or submerge in order for these things to sound credible and it's like i think that you know the complexity of a uh uh, conspiracy or something that has all, so many little pieces they're like the wrong types of little pieces right it's like a series of like deductive things this happened and this happened and this happened and therefore this all came about and you're talking about the the truth is similarly complex but it's like so much more like uh total mm-hmm. in terms of like the the social situation the economic situation like lots of actors did contribute to things that happened they weren't just like simple happenings but they arose out of like a whole mm-hmm. like, culture and the thing is part of that parts of that grand narrative are true and incredibly dangerous to humanity as a whole you know edward snowden kind of was telling the truth right and the thing is that a lot of the times within a broader sort of conspiracy ecosystem of thought that then gets amplified into something much larger as opposed to being tackled directly mm-hmm. there's no value to understanding that as a 
you know, part of some broader master plan. It's like, no, that there mm-hmm. is something that can be challenged that, it, that yeah. your government is doing. Yeah, it's like a waste of good kind of like skeptical energy. It's like there's there's things to be legitimately skeptical about and there's things to legitimately like, be concerned about and to be talking about. I mean, I hate to go back to that, just like, you know, talk about better things. <laughs> but... But, but as, as and as the people of Flint, Michigan will tell you, sometimes the government really do put shit in your water supply. All right, so Eli, you want to wrap all of that up in one grand unifying theory in which everything makes sense and there are no holes whatsoever, one no sorry. One sentence. One sentence. You bet. Um. Well, no, I have a confession to make. I'm not feeling particularly philosophical today. I have one uh, thought kind of coming off the conversation about uh, conspiracy, which is I think that that basically every conspiracy uh, theory I've ever heard of always posits some sort of agency, right? There's always some group, human or otherwise, that's that's kind of behind the curtain operating things. And I just think that the world is fucked enough, fucked up enough already and complicated enough already um, that we don't need to posit these agents. And I think sometimes... Um, conspiracy theories act as a kind of simplifying tool for people, right? It's a cr- it's a mental crutch. You go, okay, well, there's so much chaos in the world or complexity, and uh, I there needs to be something to explain it. And I think that you know we, we have to resist that urge. All right, that's it for the week. Thanks everybody hey we make a little newsletter it's called the overprint you can uh, how can they find that anna from the audio world to the digital world you can go like our facebook page which is the alpine review or follow us on twitter also at the alpine review or you can go to www.makereadymag.com and subscribe there i just said triple w and uh, you'll actually see a bit more on some of these topics we've been talking about today alongside a whole bunch of other stuff. We put that out every week. New Mark, as ever, is brought to you by Make Ready in the Alpine Review. We're produced by Anna Duckworth and edited by Nick Jaworski. You can find us on iTunes and Stitcher. Music comes from Southern Shores, made up of our good pals Ben Dalton and Jamie Townsend. You've been listening to Anna, Eli Bernstein, John De Palma, and me, Patrick Pittman. Thank you all for listening, and the truth is out there somewhere. Go find it.